Okay, well take your Bibles if you would please and open to the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. And uh, we'll start in verse 1, John chapter 3, verse 1. This is continuing the Message of Salvation series this summer. Uh, This was, uh, in case you don't know, this was a series that uh, Jeff uh, Sample uh, lined up. And uh, once we committed to uh, certain available dates, Jeff assigned the topics to us. And uh, this was uh, happily the topic assigned to me. I was very glad to receive it. So here we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 1. And this is God's Word. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, I I piddle around with music, and I have piddled around with music for about as long as I can remember, and part of that piddling around has been songwriting. I've long written music and lyrics and so on, and even back when I was a teenager, uh, music comes pretty easily to me. Uh, In fact, I I write probably, Tammy will tell you, um, I I write most of my music in the shower. And I don't know if that grosses you out or not that you sing songs that I composed while I was bathing. But uh, regardless, um, lyrics are more difficult because you're carrying the content and uh, for, a, for a while, in my late 20s, I wrote a lot of Christian songs, and I was trying to shop those songs. I was trying to get somebody interested in recording them or letting me record them. And I remember showing, and praise the Lord that no one ever, honestly, that no one ever wanted them, because doctrinally they were horrible, and they have long been lost in my attic or thrown out. I'm just grateful to God that no one ever uh, made a recording of those terrible, terrible lyrics. But um, uh, I remember shopping one song to this guy, and I, I played it. I played a few songs for him. I played this one song for him, and it was over. And he kind of went, I don't know. He was a recording industry kind of a guy. And I said, Well, it, what, 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 what? He said, Born again. He just said it's just so overused. 
And I, I, of course, I was horrified that somebody in the Christian recording industry uh, didn't thought that "born again" were, were, was a hackneyed expression. Um, but uh, uh, that said, ladies and gentlemen, um, it, it's a shame that in our culture the, the term "born again" is thrown around so freely. In fact, it's been twisted from its original meanings. Everybody from Slutney Spears to Bob Dylan to Fortune 500 companies that have been turned around, they'll say, "Oh, this company's had a new birth." They've been born again or a political campaign. You know, Joe Blow was down on his funds, but he got some more money in his campaigns. Born again, uh, celebrity makeovers. They're born again in a sense. And, and the original meaning of that has been so pulled away from its Christian moorings that hardly uh, an evangelical can define it properly. Well, we certainly don't need a new expression. We must understand what it means in the first place. And so this story of Nicodemus is a great one. Uh, you've probably heard it before. It's a, it's a very... Uh, favored story in, in, uh, in Christian, the Christian world. Uh, Billy Graham probably pe- preached on it hundreds and hundreds of times, several that I heard him uh, preach. Many a person has been won to Christ from this passage. Uh, but even though it's something you probably heard, Nicodemus, the story of Nicodemus since you were a little kid, it's the kind of passage I really love to teach. Um, you're probably not going to hear it much new, but the Word of God is living and active. And uh, if the teacher doesn't bumble into your way, then hopefully you will walk out of here marveling over who God is and uh, the glory of the gospel. So let's go to our first point, which is no one can see. Look at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Now let's pause there for a moment. Um, I think too often Nicodemus is portrayed by preachers as kind of a dope. Um, especially, you know, they, you look at verse 4. How can a man be born when he's old? Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb. You know, it's kind of like, Oh, poor old dumb old Nicodemus. Oh, how can a man be born when he's old? You can't come in mommy and tell me I'm just dumb old Nicodemus. You know, but that's not at all who Jesus is dealing with. Jesus is dealing with this guy on a very high intellectual level. And the reason he's doing that is that he can do it. Uh, Nicodemus is full of credentials. First of all, you notice that his name is Greek. He's not Greek, but his name is Greek. Uh, In fact, he probably had two names. He probably had a Hebrew name and a Greek name. And because he's got a Greek name and he chooses to use his Greek name, chances are, and most likely, he had a Greek education. And if he did have a Greek education, he probably came from some means and reputation. So we're not talking about some underprivileged dope here uh, that got caught up in the ministry uh, like me. Uh, we're talking about somebody from, from some, some, with some high regard. Uh, also, you notice in verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees. So we do know for sure that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And we all know that Jesus criticized the Pharisees. He called them hypocrites. He called them whitewashed tombs. He called them accursed. You know, the seven woes in Matthew 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Whitewashed tombs. Um, he called the, the Pharisees a lot of things. And... Um, and uh, rightly so. But let me ask you a question about, about uh, the Pharisees. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's good to be theologically conservative? you think it's good? I hope nobody says no. Well, the Pharisees were uh, theological conservatives, the theological conservatives of their day. Let me ask you another question. Do you think it's good to revere God? The Pharisees revered God. Do you think it's good to regard God's Word, the Bible, the Scriptures, as God's inspired, revealed Word? 
The Pharisees did. Now, they didn't have the New Testament, obviously, but they had the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, they had the wisdom literature, they had the prophets, they had the Old Testament, and they regarded it to be the inspired, written word and words of God. That's what the Pharisees believed. They also believed that a man would be held morally accountable before God. That God's not just up there some patsy going, oh, it's bad down there, but he's going to hold us accountable. That's what the Pharisees believed. Now, are those good things or bad things? Those are orthodox things. But the problem is, they externalized their religion. That's why Jesus continually called them out. It was all outward. Uh, it was not inward. It was not heart righteousness they were after, but they were, they were keeping the law, the external law. So the scribes interpreted the law. The Pharisees kept the law. They were the super-religious people of their day. They were highly known and highly regarded. They were the religious people everybody looked up to. All right? We also know this. Look at verse 1 again. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. That he was a member of the Jewish ruling council means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is this authoritative body. It was the highest legislative body in uh, Judaism. They basically had jurisdiction and authority over every living Jew. So now you get a picture of who this Nicodemus guy is. He's smart. He's probably educated. He's probably from some means. Um, he is a religious leader, and he's a political figure. He, he is the guy. He, 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 is, he is credentialed way up there. And in a sense, he is the model representative for us. And, he, and he's a pretty good representative, too. I mean, if you had to pick some guy, I mean, you look how early on in the, uh, the gospel uh, it, it, it shows up in John's gospel. We're in chapter 3. If you had to pick a guy to approach Jesus, uh, he's a better representative than you and me, though fallen. Well, look at verse 2. Here's how he approaches Jesus. He comes to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi. Now, that's pretty... Uh, Polite title there, isn't it? He calls Jesus rabbi, uh, and, uh, and that's polite because Jesus wasn't a rabbi in the traditional sense of the word. He didn't go through the same scholarly channels that the other rabbis did, but he calls him rabbi, and there's probably a little bit of a, a, a tone of condescension in there too, a hint of condescension, um, because again, Jesus doesn't have the same kind of uh, credentials. Notice what he says next. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. Now, that we know you are a teacher, it's, it's, that's something that shows up in kind of our theological circles. Uh, I know people who say this. They'll say, well, our position is such. We hold that blah, 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 and we see that blah, and we this and we that. It's kind of like there's a big club and you're not in it. Well, you know, he comes as a representative for the, for the Pharisees and he says, oh, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God and... Um, no one can perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God is not with him. Well, so you've got this guy. He's, he's credentialed. He comes to Jesus with the upper hand. And uh, he calls him rabbi, little tone of condescension. He says, we, another little tone of condescension. And he states his, his point and uh, he acknowledges what he seems to believe is, is uh, sincerely true, that, that Jesus is performing miraculous signs. Lots of people are witnessing it. Jesus is growing. Uh, he's kind of a big deal. And he, he lays out his statement. He's got the upper hand. And see what Jesus does. In verse 3 it says, In reply, Jesus declared. If you've got a King James Version or others, it'll say, Jesus answered. Now, did Nicodemus ask a question? No. All he did was make a declarative statement. 
He said, Rabbi, uh, I make a statement. And Jesus answers him as if it were a question. And in one step, Jesus flips the whole thing around. And now who's got the upper hand? Now who's immediately taken the steering wheel and has control of the conversation? Jesus does. And now this is not the point where we're supposed to go, oh, let's write a business book on how to communicate. Communication according to Jesus. How can we, this is a, you know, good, good stuff here. That's not what's happening. Rather, what Jesus is doing is he is macheting his way through this man's dark heart. And in verse 3 he says, he declares, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, that's, that's common terminology to you and me, but that is radical and wild. It is to say that everything Nicodemus ever lived for, everything he ever strived for, all of his, all of his, um, all of his credentials, all of his religiosity amounts to nothing spiritually. You can't even see the kingdom of God, Jesus says, unless you're born again. You remember those posters from like the early 90s? And they had like a bunch of geometric patterns on them and you'd stare at them. And if you stared at them long enough and took your glasses off and let your eyes kind of cross, then all of a sudden, boop, a flower would pop out. You know what I'm talking about? Yes? Okay, thank you. Um, and wasn't it fun to show those to people who had never seen those before? And uh, you'd show it to somebody, your mom or your grandma or your friend or something like that, and they'd, they'd look at it and they'd go, I can't see it. I can't see it. You know, when they try to see it, they'd go, it just wouldn't happen. And it was even more frustrating when somebody else had just gone, I can't see it. I can't. Oh. And then the next person comes up and they're just, I can't see it. It's so frustrating. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Here you've got this guy who is deep in religious involvement. His whole life is trying to keep God's moral law. He's trying to keep as pure as he possibly can. He's trying to himself do and do and do and do. He's staring right at it, but he can't even see it. <coughs> I've got a quote for you. <coughs> this is a, a horrible quote that I, I, I read recently. And here it is. God can do no work without first obtaining our consent. Now, you're laughing. That's good. That ought, to, that ought to be so abrasive to our souls it makes us want to scream or laugh or cry or something. You, you really believe that God's sitting around and He can't do anything unless we give Him permission? This is not the God of the universe who speaks and things are, who creates something out of nothing who makes a way unto, of salvation out of no way. This is not the God of the Bible. Virtually every distortion of the gospel, virtually every world religion, has something to do with what can I contribute to the situation. Me, God, there are these spiritual rumblings. I was a creature created to worship. Uh, there's something in me that compels me to want to worship. What can I bring to the situation? Can I sacrifice or give or be good enough or kill a virgin? Or what can I do to, to be involved in some way? Nicodemus was the best of the best, ladies and gentlemen. He was the religious superstar. And Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom. Uh, Jesus cuts right to the radical nature 
of the spiritual kingdom. And both you and Nicodemus uh, need the same thing. All right, our next point. Uh, born of the Spirit. Look at verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Now listen, Nicodemus isn't like, I just don't get it. I just do. He's not that. He's, he's kind of going, all right, you want to play that card, Jesus? Let's, I'll, I'll, I'll go down that path with you. Okay, you say, I can't see the kingdom of God unless I'm born again. But how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb uh, to be born. So what, what's, what's the deal on that? And Jesus answers him, I tell you the truth. This time he says no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Now, uh, friends, there are many interpretations of of, uh, water and Spirit and the meaning of that in this particular passage, and I'm not going to list them for you. If you want to get on the Internet and poke around, you certainly can do that. But I'm going to suggest to you that the answer for our interpretation of this properly uh, is found in chapter 1. So if you flip back a page and look at chapter 1, verse 29. Um, It says, The next day John, that would be John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes before, after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. You see that? John baptizes with water, which is a sign. It's a symbol of what? Cleansing. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit, which is the reality. You know, a sign also always has to point to, always has to accompany the thing that it signifies. John is baptizing to symbolize as a sign of cleansing. And the reality of that cleansing, the spiritual cleansing, is that Jesus baptizes with the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. Now back to our passage here. In verse 6 it says, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit to spirit. You should not be surprised by my saying, you must be born again. Now that's twice Jesus has used the term uh, born again. And it is apparently synonymous with being born of the spirits. Now, this expression, born again, um, is, is very rich. Um, it, 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 uh, it has more, than, more to do than just saying uh, born a second time. It's not merely saying born a second time. It is saying that, but not merely saying that. If we say, if we're standing on a bus stop <clears throat> and a, uh, a bus drives by, we say, hey, a bus drove by. And five minutes later, another bus drives by. We say, hey, a bus drove by again. And five minutes later, hey, a bus drove by again. All we're speaking of is repetition. A bus drove by again. Okay? But how about, anybody seen the movie Casablanca? Who's, who's seen that movie? Who's not seen Casablanca? Oh, come on. I, I've, we've, I think I'm on number 14. I think I've seen it 14 times. It's my second favorite movie. And it's, it's so close to number one, which is Blades of Glory. I'm kidding you. Uh, thank you. North by Northwest, Cary Grant. But uh, anyway, Casablanca. Uh, you know that Humphrey Bogart never says, play it again, Sam. You know that's not a line in the movie. It's not in the movie. 
Uh, Humphrey Bogart does say, play it. If she can take it, so can I. He does say that. And Ingrid Bergman says, play it. Uh, she says, play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. Okay, so that's her line. Okay? But what's so interesting about it, what's, what makes it so poignant is Sam, the piano player and singer, was with Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman in Paris when she thought her husband was dead, but he wasn't really dead, and she fell in love with Humphrey Bogart. She finds out her husband's alive. She leaves Humphrey Bogart at the train station. And years later, Humphrey Bogart owns a saloon in Casablanca, and she and her husband come in. Sam's there at the piano, and she says, Sam, I have goosebumps thinking about it. It's such a good movie. She says, Sam, play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. And what makes it so poignant is that it's Sam. She doesn't walk in and it's playing on the radio. But Humphrey Bogart's there and she's there and Sam is playing the piano and Sam is singing the lyrics of the actual song. So he's singing, he's playing it again. But there's something about the source of it that is so important. And so when we say, when Jesus says, you must be born again, he is saying you must be born a second time. He is speaking of repetition, but there's something more to it. He's saying you need to be born from the same source. You need to be born from above. Did you have anything to do with where you were born on this earth or when you were born or to the parents to whom you were born? No. You had nothing to do with it. Neither do you have anything to do, says Jesus, with being born into the spiritual kingdom. You can't even see it. You certainly can't enter it. Look at verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Let me show you a mysterious thing. This is a great hymn, which some of you may uh, uh, have never even heard of. But, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in Romans 4, it says, um, There is no one righteous... Not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. Now, listen to this hymn. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. Let me tell you, I love this song. Because this is sane, balanced Christian doctrine. Listen to it. He says, I sought the Lord. And afterward, I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. You get how, how marvelous that is, how balanced it is? The guy's saying, yes, <clears throat> even though Romans 4 tells us there was no one who seeks God, we still have secret services, don't we? We'll still say, come unto Christ. We still, still say, receive the Lord of glory. Repent, today is the day of salvation. We still should preach that. We still send monies out. We still send people out. We go around the world and we proclaim the gospel of Christ. Why? Well, because somebody's out there and they, they're, they're designed to worship. They feel some kind of weird spiritual rumbling in their heart. They feel a void, a vacuum. They don't know how to fill it. They don't know how to explain it. Somebody shares the gospel with them. Somebody brings them to church. Something happens and they find themselves seeking the Lord. They really are. I sought the Lord. And then afterward I go, oh, unbelievable. He moved my soul to seek Him because He was seeking me. It was not so much that I, it was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. 
Second verse. This is awesome. He says, Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine unfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. That's a reference to Peter stepping out in faith and he's holding on to Jesus' hand and he doesn't sink. Why? Well, it says, "'Twas not so much that I uh, on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me." The whole time I thought I was grabbing onto you and you were holding on to me, keeping me from sinking under the waves. Then the last verse says, I find, I walk, I love. Yes, I do those things. I found God. I walk with Him. I love Him. I sought Him. It's true. I did those things. But the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to Thee. For Thou wert long beforehand with my soul. Always Thou lovest me. You know, He loves us with an everlasting love. We love, why? Because we've first been loved. All right, our last point. Lifted up was He to die. Um, it's, no, it's no wonder that Nicodemus would say what he says in verse 9. How can this be? How can this be? The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The Spirit blows across souls and, uh, and, and uh, lets you see. And, and Nicodemus says, how can this be? Good question. That's a more intense reprisal of his question in verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? How can it be? How can this be? And at this point, ladies and gentlemen, the dialogue stops and the discourse begins because Nicodemus doesn't talk anymore. Jesus is doing all the talking. And what Jesus does is he cites a story <coughs> from Numbers uh, chapter 21. Look at verse 10. He says, you are Israel's teacher and, you, and, and do not understand these things. Um, now, again, let's not import a caustic tone into Jesus' voice. You're Israel's teacher. You don't understand. You really think that's how Jesus talked? He's going, you're Israel's teacher. And do not understand these things? I think what Jesus is saying is, hey, buddy, it's right there in the Old Testament you love. Let me show you. You don't have to turn, but um, in Numbers 21, here's what Jesus references. He's talking about the Israelite people. And they're following Moses under Moses' leadership. They travel uh, from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea. They go around Edom. But it says the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. And so God goes, oh, really? I hate to hear that. Um, you want some snakes? And so God gives them some poisonous snakes. And poisonous snakes are now moving through the camp. And it says that... Um, uh, they, uh, where is it? They bit the, uh, Isra the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. I bet they did. And they asked Moses, pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, lifted it up on a pole and when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now, isn't it interesting? Of all things, this is what Jesus references when he's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes with him. I got the upper hand on him. Let me tell you a few things of Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, you can't even see the kingdom of God. Oh, and you, because you can't see it, you can't enter it either. You've got to be born again. 
And Nicodemus goes, what? How can it be? Oh, the spirit blows. How can it be? And Jesus tells the story about a snake lifted up. Well, notice the parallels. In that story with the Israelite people, there was a deserved guilt, wasn't there? The people were guilty. They grumbled against God. They grumbled against Moses. They said, Egypt looks so good right now. And you give us this crummy food. And you've done this. And you've done this. It's a complaint against God and Moses. So there's a deserved guilt. What's another parallel? Well, there's a death sentence. If the poison snake bites you, that's it. You're bitten by the poison snake. is going to happen. Um, what else? No effort can be made on their part to save themselves. They're in trouble. They've got to go to Moses. They're like, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. Will you pray for us? That's another parallel. Um, there's an intercessor. Moses prays for them. He intercedes for the people. And then lastly, the inflicted only live by faith. They can't make a tourniquet. They can't suck out the poison. You know, they can't get bed rest. They can't drink lots of liquids. They can't drink vitamin C. All they can do is say, we got nothing. You tell us, okay, we look at this and we can live by, we look at this in faith and we live, that's, that's how we live. Now, how, do, how does that apply to you? You want to know how that applies to you? Back in verse 14 of our passage here, it says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Now, uh, on this side of the cross, uh, we know it was Jesus Himself who was lifted up to die, don't we? But Nicodemus didn't know what he was talking about. But the parallels are very easy to make, aren't they? Deserved guilt. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Um, death sentence. The wages of sin is death. Um, no effort can be made on one's own part to save. It is by grace you have been saved. Um, there is intercession by another. There is one mediator, mediator between God and man. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. And then lastly, the inflicted only live by the instrument of faith. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, the source through faith, the instrument. That's why Jesus tells the story to Nicodemus. All right, well, a couple things and we'll close. Uh, whatever happened to Nicodemus? You think he's in heaven? Wouldn't it be cool to see Nicodemus in heaven? Well, he pops up in chapter 7. And uh, the uh, Jewish leaders, this is in uh, verse 45 and following, um, the Jewish leaders are, are talking about uh, Jesus. Uh, people wanted to seize him, but they didn't. No one laid a hand on Jesus. And the temple, the temple guards go back to the chief priests and Pharisees in verse 45 of chapter 7, and they, they ask him, why didn't you bring him in? You're right there. You're the t temple guards. Why didn't you bring him in? And the, the guards go, well, no one ever spoke the way this man does. <laughs> and uh, they say, you mean he's deceived you too? The Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob knows nothing of the law. There's a curse on them. Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and was one of their own number, Pharisee, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So you see, something's happening in Nicodemus' life. All right, let's go to the end of the gospel. Virtually. Look at, look at chapter 19. 
verse 38. Jesus is crucified. And in verse 38 of the passage, it says later, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, you know, he's a rich guy. He's got a tomb and uh, apparently some, uh, some clout. He goes to Pilate. He asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. Now, we don't have a clear statement of Nicodemus' conversion, but my goodness, ladies and gentlemen, I think we're going to see that guy in heaven. Can you imagine what it must have been like for him to take the body down off the cross? And to care for it and wrap it and prepare it for burial? Can you imagine how he would have thought back to Jesus talking about being born again? And he would have said, lifted up was he to die. It is finished. Was his not him wasn't written yet. But you just know that it had to have been just so prominent on his mind. You know... Um, there's, an, there's another hymn in, in that hymnal that I love, and it's got a, an expression in there called that, that says dark unrest. That a soul without Christ has a dark unrest. And I think Nicodemus came to Jesus in John 3 with a dark unrest. Or maybe he didn't have an unrest yet. Maybe he was just a representative and he had some questions. But somewhere in there, a dark Unrest grew until it was finally satisfied the only way it could be with this one who had been lifted up, born again, so that he might see and enter the kingdom of heaven. I close with this. Um, Johnny Coggan on, on staff at our church here, he and his wife are expecting a baby. <coughs> and um, the baby's due within a month. It's a girl. And uh, he said, he, about three weeks ago, he said, I got the strangest sensation. He said... Um, it, it, every week or so, it, it hits him. Every few weeks, it hits him. He said, um, I, I miss her. He's talking about the baby girl. He said, I miss her. And she's not even here yet. And I, I, I've thought about that 20 times. And, and how, what a wonderful example that is for heaven, you know? We miss it. We long for it. We, we yearn for it. And we haven't even seen it. But I think it's a good, I think it's a good illustration for the for the, the heart that has spiritual rumbling. Maybe, you know, it's Wednesday night. You people are the super pious. You don't have to come. Even a small crowd, look who's here. I mean, you guys are the, the great ones, the religious ones, you know. Um, but, you know, somebody may listen to this recording someday. So let me talk to them. Well, let me talk to you too. Um, there might be something going on in your heart, some kind of rumbling, some kind of question, some kind of, Wondering why you belong and how you fit in and why you exist and why you even came here and why you're compelled to, to religious things. Well, I, I, I say that that's a dark unrest. And uh, I, I say that uh, you might be in a situation where you're seeking, seeking the Lord, wanting, walking, yearning. And uh, I say this to you, receive the Lord of glory. Christ was lifted up to die in the sinner's place. 
You couldn't add anything to the equation of salvation. All you brought was your guilt. Christ brought His righteousness. He was lifted up to die. And that's the answer to the dark unrest your soul holds so tightly. Lord Jesus, we bow before You remembering that... uh, You are the Son of God that, uh, as it says in John 1, that nothing was made uh, without you. Uh, Hebrews tells us that you're the exact representation of God and God the Father addresses you as God. And so we bow before you and understand that your righteousness was uh, laid down. Uh, Your righteousness was sufficient. Your life laid down in the sinner's place. And uh, my prayer is tonight, Lord, that whoever hears this and whenever they hear it, Uh, we'll find an answer to the, the dark unrest that they would be born anew, born of the Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.